Welcome to season two of One in Five, which takes its name from the one in five college students in the U.S. who are also parents. I'm David Kroon from Ascend at the Aspen Institute. I have the pleasure of leading Ascend's post-secondary success for parents initiative and share a personal connection to the work as a son of a student parent. This season of One in Five, we've heard remarkable student parents, past and present, share their educational and professional achievements and the pitfalls they've encountered along the way. A majority of student parents are women of color, with Black and Native students more likely to be balancing school and parenting than other groups of students. In this bonus episode, we're doing a deep dive into their experiences. I'm joined by our guests, Dr. Dina Aroundtim and Julian Thompson, to shed more light on student parents and administrators' experiences at historically Black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, and tribal colleges and universities, or TCUs, as well as how Ascend's Black and Native Family Futures Fund is advancing student parent success on these campuses. Dr. Aroundhim, Mr. Thompson, thank you both for being here. Thank you for inviting me, David. It's a pleasure to see the representation of Native peoples and Native student parents in Ascend's work, and I'm really excited for the conversation today. Me too. Thank you so much, David, and uh, great to meet you, Dr. Aroundhim. Ascend's Black and Native Family Futures Fund is a new capacity-building fund that provides financial support and expert technical assistance to selected HBCUs and TCUs committed to improving the success of student parents. I'm excited to have you both here to talk about the student parent experiences at these institutions, as well as insights from students and administrators at Grambling State University and Stone Tower College, two fund recipients. Julian, I'm gonna go with you first. You're the Director of Strategy at UNCF's Institute for Capacity Building. Could you briefly tell us about your work with historically black colleges and universities? Sure thing, David, and thank you so much for the opportunity to be on this podcast. I work at the United Negro College Fund, which is an organization dedicated to the improvement and sustainability of our country's historically Black colleges and universities. I work for a unit called the Institute for Capacity Building, uh, which is essentially trying to do two things. Number one, we're partnering with HBCUs on the types of strategies that can improve uh, the success of their students, their faculty, and their institutions. And number two, we're creating networks where HBCUs can learn from each other and from other practices in higher education. Um, It's with that framework that we think a lot about the work that HBCUs do to support student parents. Thank you, Julian. Dr. Aroundhim, you're a 2022 Ascend Fellow, which I have to say first and foremost, (laughs) uh, and a Senior Research Scholar at Child Trends. Can you tell us a bit more about your research focus? Of course. Uh, I'm a research scholar at Child Trends, a nonprofit, nonpartisan company dedicated to rigorous research and evaluation that ensures all children thrive. I have the pleasure of leading our Child Trends initiative focused on developing a policy and practice relevant research agenda to advance the well-being of Indigenous children and families. I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, a mother, and a citizen of Indian country, so to speak. The term parenting students was not familiar to me until a couple of years ago, but like you, David, the experience exists within my own family, and I know that it is common among my personal networks as well. I wanted to learn more, and my colleagues and I were able to recently conduct an analysis of public data from the National Center for Education Statistics 
with partners at the Urban Institute, where we found that 27% or more than one in four Indigenous undergraduate students are parenting. So while the specific topics and areas of emphasis in my research are varied, Native children and families are always at the center. And my research focus is ensuring they have what they need to thrive. Thank you, Dr. Aranham. I'm so excited to have you both. And really, I think um, what's going to be great is bringing that Tujin perspective. So having uh, expertise in both uh, children and families, but also the post-secondary pathway and adults will be really, I think, formative and helpful for this conversation. So I'm going to move on to our next question, which is, I'd like to start with how student parent and child experiences are unique at HBCUs and tribal colleges. These colleges and universities have been leading the way in supporting student parents, their families, and their communities. So, Julian, I want to go with you first. Can you speak a little bit to what I mentioned just now? Um, in your experience working with HBCUs, why do you think they're particularly well positioned to support the student parent population as compared to other kinds of colleges and universities? Yeah, um, it's a great question, David. It's a privilege at UNCF to be able to work with historically black colleges and universities because HBCUs are a unique institution in the context of uh, our country's history and indeed in world history. The fact that HBCUs were created in the United States in the aftermath of the Civil War and a couple of them actually beforehand um, was a miracle. And the fact that today, uh, in 2023, we have a group of 102 accredited historically Black colleges and universities whose mission is the service of Black people in the Black community is literally unprecedented across the Western Hemisphere. And so it's a really a group of institutions that America can be proud of. Really, when you take a, a deeper dive, there's a lot to be proud of in terms of their current implementation of their, their work. Our Frederick D. Patterson Research Institute actually just released a study on um, economic mobility for students that attend HBCUs and compared it to predominantly white institutions and other institutions in American higher education. What it found was that 90% of HBCUs rank in the top 10% of institutions across the country when it comes to the question of number one, providing access to students who are from the lowest income quartiles in our country. And then number two, creating the conditions for those students to leave that bottom quartile after they graduate. In my view, um, HBCUs have achieved that success by building real cultures, processes, and systems that focus on access, inclusion, and belonging. And while those practices may not be documented in ways that um, others might expect, they're an embedded part of the culture. And that creates conditions where students who aren't thriving in the PWI context are finding ways to be supported, to persist, to graduate, and to find fulfilling careers because of their experience at HBCUs. Uh, so in my view, it's that real historic grounding that HBCUs have had as places of inclusion and how that is woven through the leadership styles, the approaches of faculty, the nature of the systems that are, are um, embraced at HBCUs that create the conditions, I think, for them to be true leaders in engagement of student parent populations. Awesome. Thank you. And um, hits on so many notes, um, considering that there's uh, student parents feel a real sense of stigma and a lack of belonging um, because of their parenting status. So again, that, that sense of community um, and purpose at HBCUs really speaks to potentially speaks to that population. 
Dina, um, moving on to tribal context. So I'm going to play a clip in a moment. We talked to a student parent named Clarissa who attends a tribal college in Montana, Stone Child College, one of our um, Family Future Fund institutions. But she did more than just attend. Um, she describes the college as a second family to her. And I should also note that 61% of students at Stone Child College are student parents. So it's a significant population. Now we're going to play you a clip from Clarissa's interview, and I would love for you to share your thoughts on the kind of culture um, tribal colleges create, so st um, like Stone Child, um, and that encourage student parents to succeed and be to live and thrive. So I'm going to play that clip now. Stone Child has always been like um, like a second family to me. My mom, she uh, she used to work there. Um, she worked there for I think over ten years. Um, in different in different positions, you know, with different grants and stuff. But um, so I got to know a lot of the staff there and, and they got to know me and I got to work there like in the summer when I was, uh, a, you know, like in high school. It's a, it's just a community all of its own, Stone Child. So my, my dream, honestly, I want to stay on my reservation. Um, the world is a big and beautiful place and I love that and I want to travel and see it and I want my kids to see it too. But I always want them to be, know where their home is and know where they belong. And, and we belong here, you know, this is our home. Um, us as Native people, we're really like a tight-knit, a tight-knit culture in general. Like, even like you could really see that during the pandemic, you know, our reservation really takes care of its people. And not just that, but it's just, it, it's home. I don't want to leave home, you know, like a place where I belong. I know who I am. I know, you know, I, I'm learning more about my, my religion and, and it's just been great. Uh, there are so many wonderful things that I heard in that clip. Um, oftentimes in Native communities, educational institutions like K-12 schools and TCUs are the heart of community events and activities. And in Clarissa's remarks, we heard just how powerful this can be for promoting academic success and making those places safe and affirming learning environments for community members. This can be especially true for Indigenous parenting students, given that TCUs um, are more likely to offer parenting students on-campus childcare support compared to other degree-granting institutions. Um, for example, it's estimated that 43% of TCUs offer parenting students on-campus childcare compared to just 21% of other institutions. TCUs take care of the whole family and often go beyond what we see in non-tribal higher ed settings. I think the experiences Clarissa described are likely common among Indigenous parenting students at TCUs, and more recent pushes to generate data to help us understand these experiences are really exciting. David, you noted that an estimated 61% of Stone Child College students are student parents. I'm not surprised by that number at all. Our TCUs across the country um, are an immense resource for uh, tribal communities and there are over 35 accredited TCUs that operate 90 campuses in 15 states, covering the majority of what we think of as Indian country, places where a large proportion of Native people live. Um, these colleges and institutions serve Native students from over 200 federally recognized Indian tribes, and their student populations um, include young people right out of high school and adults who are returning to school after a break in their educational journey. Um, these include people who have young children as well as older students with teenagers. And so I think it's really exciting to hear 
Clarissa's experience be one that is so affirming for her and um, allowed her to see her setting roots and um, making a path for her children to remain in their community and feel connected to their identity there as well. Thank you, Dina. Yeah, I love that clip. <laughs> it was such a, a just great um, opportunity to hear from a student parent perspective and sort of how this college has been such a, a place for them to be and to belong, uh, which is what we hear from talking to tribal students and, and others as well. I want to move to talking about um, one of the um, HBCUs in our Family Futures Fund, Grambling uh, University. They're working on reopening their Campus Child Development Center, which closed in 2009 due to a lack of sufficient funding, which is a common theme throughout post-secondary. Taking a strong two-generation approach, the university will provide early literacy and developmentally appropriate science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics curriculum to children enrolled at the center, while also providing wraparound support services to their parents who are enrolled at the university. Grambling is a good example of the programming that HBCUs and tribal colleges are investing in to support student parents. I'll play a clip from President Gallo of Grambling State University, and then I'll turn to both of you for your reflections on the facility he describes. I attended nursery school through uh, college on this uh, on this very campus. Uh, we, in addition to the nursery school, we had a, a laboratory school that was first through 12th grade. So yeah, I, I all of my uh, education up through college was all on the campus of Grambling State University. It was closed um, two presidents before me, and uh, but there is now a, a charter school, a Lincoln Preparatory School, and they're in the uh, final stages of a new $45 million campus uh, that is uh, still here in Grambling. So, uh, we we will definitely have have an amazingly uh, you know great school complex for uh, for our local kids uh, to attend much better than the facilities we had at the lab school. From the very beginning of my presidency, uh, I can recall several students asking if we would be reopening the uh, the child care center because they were you know student parents. You know we have to uh, and one of the things I. I always say when I'm out recruiting prospective students is that we will meet you where you are. And let's face it, if, if you are a, uh, a, a parent who's interested in going to college, then I think that's something you're going to look for in, in, as you're shopping what school you may go to. And so I think there's, a, there's certainly a competitive uh, advantage to uh, to having these types of services for for students who may or may not otherwise uh, consider coming here, this may be that thing that uh, that they need that will will sort of uh, put them over the uh, over the top in terms of uh, of choosing Grambling. So I, I think there's certainly an, an advantage there. Just as I was blessed in in the Grambling community to interact with and and uh, and know uh, black. PhDs, you know, throughout the uh, the entire community, it gives these children the the visible representation of what black excellence looks like, and what they see is what they will be. So, Julian, I'll go with you first. Um, how does a program like the one at Grambling actually improve the experience of student parents, but also the resilience and sustainability of the college? In other words, strategically, how is supporting a student parent population and their kids beneficial to the college itself? 
It's critically important, I think, particularly as um, our higher education system seeks to embrace more and a, a larger diversity of the types of students that it uh, serves, uh, that we build a more holistic approach to what it means to serve a student and ensure that a student is prepared for success. Um, so many of our higher education institutions um, have built real systems and structures around academics and academic preparation. Uh, but a holistic approach to student success and a holistic approach to student well-being uh, has to interface with that uh, student school community, uh, consider all of the factors that uh, impact their commitment to completion, uh, support them in the managing the commitments that they have outside of their lives that will impact their ability to succeed. And that doesn't even begin to get to the questions of finances, of making sure that they are physically and mentally healthy and supported, um, ensuring that they have career opportunities that enable them to stay in school and graduate. And so, you know, I'm really finding that we're just at the cusp of uh, higher education taking on the full project of embracing a student in all of their three-dimensionality and ensuring that they have what they need to be successful. If you use the perspective of holistic student engagement as your framework, then you have to deal with the fact that one in five uh, college students is a student parent. And that means that you have to help that student manage commitments, think about the resources that they have to, to manage, ensure that not only the student themselves, but their families are fully healthy and supported, and so it's exciting to see that in a place like Grambling, but really across the HBCU space, uh, we're seeing examples of them putting that spirit into practice through new and innovative programs um, and through the types of policies that can help underserved and excluded student populations succeed. Dina, how does support like what we see uh, at Stonechild, but also Grambling was just mentioned um, that we'll be establishing, help meet the needs of children and help them thrive based on, based on your research and knowledge? Um, what could be better considered from the child's perspective um, and how could your research be better applied toward post-secondary spaces? I'm really excited to see things like the two-gen approach that Ascend has talked about quite a bit being discussed in the TCU um, and parenting student space. There are real opportunities to bridge what we're doing in tribal early childhood research with what we're learning about parenting students' experiences. Um, we've done a lot of work to show that engagement in culture and language learning opportunities promote a positive identity and a strong identity for Native children. And if we can do that as early as possible, and encourage them to pursue education at home, then that sets them up for the future where they can become our doctors, our lawyers, and contribute to our communities in new and exciting ways. So I'm really um, inspired by the growing emphasis on two-gen approaches. And I think in our tribal context, we often think of it as a multi-gen approach. Many of our families exist with extended family networks. We have grandparents um, who may also be in college and learning alongside their children and grandchildren. Um, and I think that's a, a nice way for us to learn about what works for our communities and extend some of those lessons to other settings like HBCUs and other institutions where we may have large proportions of Native students um, that are not 
attending school in a, a tribally operated educational institution. Thank you. So I'd like to play you both a clip of, of Dr. Suzanne Mayo at Grambling State, um, where she notes um, some issues around partnerships. And in particular, she's talking about it from her context with HBCUs, um, including at the state level where Grambling is based in Louisiana, um, to team up and tackle um, issues together. This sort of team up can be a, a bit of a challenge. So we'll play that clip. I have not found any. I've been looking since we applied, since the grant was announced. And I've been trying to see if there is. I've, uh, I have not found a support group. I think that's something that could come out of the grant uh, to, as, as it builds and, and moves possibly in the future. I hope so, to, that there will be a, a group of um, ascend, ascenders, if we will, <laughs> of Aspen Institute ascenders at HBCUs around children and families. Even by states, I can't even find it in the state of Louisiana. And, and we have three three or four campuses that have the C campus. Now, they're meeting about C campus and trying to see if there should be a statewide effort to apply so that everybody has the same thing. But I haven't found that they've reached out to us to say, hey, let's get together and talk about how we do it. So that that's probably a void that needs to happen in our area, and, and it certainly would be beneficial for everyone, not just at HBCUs, but you could have one at HBCUs and then you could have one by state. So you have two vehicles of uh, individuals getting uh, cohesive work and sharing strategies and looking at best practices between all of us. Awesome. And just to, for listeners, C Campus is a federal grant program that provides subsidized childcare slots at college campuses. As we know, HBCUs and tribal colleges have institutional cultures rooted in family, community, and holistic supports that make them uniquely positioned to identify and address the needs of Black and Native student parents. But they're also historically underfunded institutions and resources. Question for Julian. This is something you would uniquely know. Um, how are HBCUs partnering together to solve these problems more efficiently and widely? And what are some of the barriers that exist and how can we overcome them in this work? Yeah, um, it's a great question, David. And I, I think first we need um, broader acknowledgement that HBCUs are doing incredible work in the context of a two-part challenge in terms of them really being able to serve their students with uh, the types of supports that they deserve. Uh, the first is that they're engaging a student group that has a need for more supports than what you typically find in the PWI context. Uh, most HBCU students are first generation. Uh, overwhelming majority of HBCU students are Pell eligible. Um, they're, of course, coming um, from a space of being a racial minority and coming from systems and communities that are not well supported. And the HBCU as an institution has to be able to respond to that and respond to the unique kind of challenges or uh, dynamics that come up with that community in order to support them on their academic journey. HBCUs are doing that, as you've mentioned, David, in the context of their historic exclusion, which means they have smaller endowments than uh, their PWI counterparts. It means that they oftentimes are operating on fewer operational dollars, um, that they're not getting the types of research and federal grants um, that you can expect from their counterparts. And so that resource uh, scarcity leads to, I think, a real challenge around being able to innovate with new programs and opportunities that can help them really propel their missions into the future. 
Um, oftentimes in our work, we talk about HBCU leaders just wearing a lot of hats. Um, so when you uh, oftentimes find an HBCU leader who's elevated up the ranks, they end up having four or five or six or seven major responsibilities on their campus. Um, and that sh being stretched thin oftentimes uh, precludes the opportunity to thoughtfully innovate on the types of strategies that can support their learners uh, with student parent strategies being um, um, key amongst them. And so um, from the UNCF and the Institute for Capacity Building perspective, of course, we're looking to make the case for HBCU supports in the uh, federal government and major philanthropy, um, among other industry and corporate leaders. Of course, we've got to continue to make sure that those entities know, the key decision makers in our country know uh, that HBCUs are deserving of the types of supports and engagement that's found in the rest of higher education. But in the meantime, what we're doing and what our institutions have found tremendous value in is being in network and in collaboration with each other. Um, and you heard that a little bit from Dr. Mayo. I mean, so she was interested in the question of finding resources from state and federal governments, et cetera. But what she wanted most in that opening part of her remarks was an opportunity to connect, an opportunity to learn from other institutions that are embracing common practices. If you can imagine being in a space where you're looking for new strategies on supporting student learners, you don't want to have to go through the process of finding out which partners are actually dedicated to your student population, which resources are available at local, uh, state, or federal levels, right? If that kind of information sharing can happen across networks, it speeds up the opportunity to fail fast and get to the solutions that work for your population. And so in the Institute for Capacity Building, we are building those networks focused on student success, on mental health, on executive leadership, on strategy, um, because we're trying to build uh, in the context of at least the HBCU and predominantly Black institution space, the momentum to be able to embrace the types of solutions that will work for all campuses that are situated in the same way that HBCUs are. And we hope that that type of strategy will help HBCUs as they seek to embrace all of the learners that come into their game. Thank you, Julian. For Dina, a challenge that's come up in our conversations with student parents is what's next? What happens after we leave this, this supportive space that exists within an HBCU or tribal context? So I would be interested in how, from your perspective, parents could prepare themselves and better advocate for their kids once they leave these supportive environments. That's a great question. And I think um, the experience that Indigenous students have at TCUs is very supportive. We know that, but we also know that many Indigenous students um, live and exist in communities that have been historically under-resourced. So the workforce and job opportunities that are available to them once they leave a TCU may be quite limited. So I think I would frame that question more in the sense of what can TCUs do to pre help prepare um, parenting students to advocate for themselves and their children um, once they leave that environment. I think it's um, important for the systems that support students to um, make sure that they're meeting their needs in ways that um, can prepare them for leaving the communities that they're in if they need to. Um, we know that 
from data in 2021, Native children under the age of 18 and the overall Native population disproportionately experienced poverty when compared to several other racial and ethnic population groups. The estimated um, percentage of children living in poverty was 8.4% for Hispanic children, 8.1% for Black children, and 7.4% for Native children. Although we know that there are so many data concerns and challenges when we look at statistics for Native communities, that this is likely um, a significant underestimate of the experience of poverty. And again, this reflects a broader context of historical disinvestment in Native communities. So if we know that we need to prepare people to be able to think about different types of workforce opportunities that they can pursue within their community or um, make sure that they're prepared if they must leave their community to continue having a job and an income to support their families. Um, I think it's really important to make sure that students get set up with those types of supports um, long before they reach graduation. Um, we don't want parents to experience um, a sudden loss of benefits like childcare offered through a tribal college, for example. So it's important to make sure that they're connected to tribal services that might be um, open and available to them, like childcare, um, when they lose access to those things at the TCU. And I think it's important to also think about other programs and services that exist within tribal communities, like tribal home visiting, um, other outreach programs that the tribe tribes may offer, um, and create that warm handoff that parenting students may need to make those connections that will help them continue to thrive um, as they pursue uh, professional and job opportunities. I think one other um, resource to tap into are parenting student alums who have had to navigate that space in the past. And there may be lessons that we can learn there about how they've successfully navigated that transition or the particular pitfalls that they've experienced so that we can develop programming within our TCU systems to support students going forward. Awesome. Thank you. So I know we're getting close to the end of our time of the roundtable, so I have a couple more questions. The next question I have is going to be focused on, and I maybe uh, ask Dina to start us off. If you could create a wish list, what are some of the top maybe two or three resources that you think HBCUs and tribals need to better support student parents? I'm a researcher, so one of the biggest things that I can think of is data. I know that Measuring things like the number of parenting students doesn't sound super exciting to most people. But in this case, I think documenting our experiences in both qualitative and quantitative ways, um, using stories, those things are really powerful for changing our narratives about ourselves and um, creating the space for us to dream about what's possible and what can exist for our children. Um, those things also help us change the narrative for others. Um, and I think that's an important thing when we think about the number of resources and dollars that we need to have flowing into tribal communities to support um, children and families. We also want to make sure that we're investing our dollars to support them in the right places. Thank you. Julian? Oh, a wish list, huh? I mean, I really agree with Dr. Around him. In my role in particular, I'm also just really keen on thinking about partnership dynamics and creating the conditions for our institutions to be able to partner better across the nonprofit space, across the corporate space um, with federal and state governments. 
our HBCUs, our higher education systems can't do their work in silos. And the process of identifying partners, of coming into agreement with how those partners operate, um, of trying to determine which partners are transactional versus which ones are transformational, it takes a lot of energy and a lot of time and a lot of consideration. And you've got to kind of zig and zag your way through that process. So you know, my wish list, I think, is that there's a opportunity for either an intermediary like the one I work with or a funder group or um, other stakeholder to help institutions weave their way through that partnership process, um, because it'll really help accelerate the types of strategies that I think um, institutions need to embrace. So final question, President Gallo shared some powerful words earlier about students generally and student parent families. What they see is what they will be. For both of you, what is the vision that you see for the future of student parents? What can HBCUs and tribal colleges learn from each other to support that vision? And I'll start with um, Dina. I think that I, my dream is that Native children have all of the opportunities that they can to be connected to their cultures and languages. I would love to see um, parenting students have access to those resources and be able to create that environment for their children. Um, And I think investing dollars and funds into tribal institutions that can um, provide those solutions for families is the best way to achieve that. So Um, I would like to see Native children be proud of who they are because they see who they are everywhere that they are. And that includes our institutions of higher education, their early learning environments, and their home environments. And we have to be investing in things that allow parents to be whole and access those things just as much as we have to allow those experiences for Native children and families. Julian? Yeah, um... My dream is that we will figure out a way to finally lower the walls of higher education and create conditions where there is true integration between higher education spaces and the communities that they serve. I think there's tremendous opportunity for deeper integration with K-12 spaces, deeper integration with civic and political leaders, deeper connection to the local nonprofits and other organizations that are supporting communities um, where higher education institutions sit, um, because we have to get to a place where we understand that students are not just experiencing the academic um, space for the two or three hours a day that they're on campus. Their lives are going between that space and the rest of their lives. And the more we can create the conditions for that space to be in harmony, the better. Um, So that's the future of higher education, Uh, not as a space that's an ivory tower for an excluded few, but one where the opportunities for wisdom, for knowledge, for connection, for research, for opportunity that's embedded in the higher education experiment becomes available to all. Um, And that's really going to help us uh, as a country as we facilitate the type of society that um, each of our our children and grandchildren will deserve. Again, thank you both, uh, Julian and Dina, for joining us for today's conversation. Um, So many relevant um, elements that came out of the conversation. I think there's been 
Well, one, I would just say there's so much strong um, intersectionality among parenting uh, students and Black and Native contexts, and there's so much to learn from HBCUs and tribal colleges considering how culturally responsive they are they were built to be, uh, and, and showcasing that um, by how they're serving um, parenting students in this work. Um, so really deep appreciation for you both for joining us today's conversation. To learn more about the Black and Native Family Futures Fund, um, please go to um, ascend.aspeninstitute.org um, to learn more. And also, of course, uh, feel free, to, we'll have more information about um, today's panelists as well. Thank you all again for, for joining our roundtable and have a great day. Thank you. Wado, thank you. It was a pleasure to learn from Julian and to be a part of this conversation. One in Five is produced by LWC Studios and presented by Ascend at the Aspen Institute, which is a catalyst and convener for systems, policy, and social impact leaders working to create a society where every family passes a legacy of prosperity and well-being from one generation to the next. To learn more about student parents and resources for them, please visit ascend.aspeninstitute.org and follow at Aspen Ascend on Twitter. Ava Akhmabegi wrote and produced this episode. Paulina Valesco is our managing producer. Our theme song is Ascenders by Kojin Toshiro, who also mixed this episode. I'm David Kroon. Subscribe to One in Five on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.